Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Will the Fed hike 75 basis points or 100 basis points? That's the question everybody is asking right now. Welcome to the Real Vision Briefing. It's Tuesday, September 20, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Tony Greer, founder of TG Macro. How you doing, Ash? Oh, doing great, man. It's great to be back here with you. Sure is. It sure is. Good to see your face. Dude, it's been too long. FOMC meeting tomorrow, some housing data out today. Lots going on, Tony. What's on your mind? Uh, well, I have two major things on my mind, Ash, to answer that question. Um, you know, one of them is that one of them that we're going to come back to is, you know, sorting out the SPR in the oil market. I think that's important to sort of uh, take a look at. And the other thing is, as you say, the FOMC that we're coming up on. Um, tomorrow, I'm really interested to see if that FOMC haiku is correct again. Um, and that's the haiku that basically just says, you know, you buy the FOMC meeting and you sell the FOMC minutes. And if you look at a chart and plot those on the chart, that's about seven for 10 this year so far. So in my opinion, Ash, this episode heading into this OFOMC meeting particularly sets up for an upside move in the S&P, if you ask me. And I can go into that if you want to break it down, or we can talk about oil first, whatever you want to do. Yeah, break it down, Tony. What's your what's your take on the S&P and this upside move that you see coming? Yeah, you know, and I, and I just, I, I like to just react. You know, that that's my specialty is to wait and see what happens, let the dust settle a little bit, and then sort of make a decision on my portfolio I'm not big on predicting, but when I see the setup like I see it now, where first of all, we've got sentiment is back in the basement, right? Sentiment, CNN, fear and greed. It's been pinned to fear for weeks now. Um, AAII bull index is, you know, very modestly hung in the 20s right now, not really impressing anybody, right? We, what we've got is we've got two-year yields breaking out, followed by 10-year yields breaking out, right? We feel this bear market. We've got the break of the S&P wedge, right? Everybody is looking for downside. They're probably looking for 100 basis points out of the Fed. My idea is that all of the selling for a 100 basis point rate hike looks like it may have already been done, right? Bless you. 
by from, from the day we got that CPI number out, September uh, September 13th, right? When we got the 8.3% CPI upside surprise, we've had six trading sessions since then. Each trading session has registered a tick index on the low extreme wider than minus 1500, including two tick extremes near minus 2K. So portfolio managers have visibly and observably blown their brains out heading into this OMC meeting. It just seems to me like we could be set up for them to come out with another dovish FOMC meeting versus expectations of that 100 basis point hike. And next thing you know, stocks climb out of the ditch. What do you think of that? I think it's interesting that we're talking about dovish uh, FOMC meetings with 75 basis point hikes. I can't believe we lived this long. Right. That's true. And I'm talking about versus expectations, right? Yeah. Obviously, it's going to be hawkish. Obviously, we're going to get some kind of a rate rise. The Fed is still in this mode where they've got a commitment to flighting inflation. And Ash, what I think is so cool, the only thing that the interest rate markets keep telling me is they're calling bullshit on all of the government media rhetoric that's saying either the administration or the Federal Reserve is not causing inflation. Because every time, you know, there's another statement that comes out that says we're going to write checks to pay for the inflation, um, you know, we're going to bail out companies. I feel like the Treasury market sees that and says, oh, boy, that's inflationary, too. And treasuries sell off another leg and yields break higher. So that's the way I'm interpreting the narrative that the markets are coming at me with. And, man, it's a lot to digest, though. It really is very volatile, these markets. It sure is. Let me add a little bit of color uh, around the SPX. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, some 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 consternation, maybe some conflict about things. One thing that there isn't a conflict about is the past performance of the S&P 500. Look at this just on my screen. We were talking about this a little bit before we went live here. One year uh, performance, S&P 500 minus 11 and a quarter percent year to date, minus almost 19 percent, 52 week high uh, percent change from high off 19 spot, 75 percent on the SPX. Man, you know, these are that is to me, you know, the market that that is the general confirmation ash of the overall dynamic as I see it, which really seems to have gotten into overdrive since we got confirmation that CPI isn't going lower anytime soon and that genie is not going to jump back in the bottle. Right. We just saw a 45% year over year number in Germany. I mean, my guess is is that we're not not necessarily on that pace, but if inflation is that ferocious in Germany, chances are it's not going to be backing off and going the other way here in the United States. So that's the way I'm looking at things, Ash. But it seems like the dynamic of higher yields, higher dollar, lower stocks led by technology and volatile to sideways hard assets and commodity markets, that seems like the tail of the tape to me still. Interesting. For men who see some potential of the upside on SP 500, I should say we're up about 6% from the 52-week lows. Talking of the Fed meeting tomorrow, I wanted to go to our tweet of the day. Uh, this one comes to us from Jim Bianco, our friend Jim Bianco. Lots of talk about the Fed making a policy mistake. The policy mistake was last year calling inflation transitory. This year is the consequence of that mistake. You cannot argue the Fed is about to make a policy mistake. It already happened over a year ago. Tony Greer, I have a feeling that one's right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, I love Jim Bianco's angle on markets. I, I really do. And I'd, I'd almost argue that the transitory idea was part of the inflationary strategy. 
I, I had a feeling that they thought that they, oh, excuse me, I have a feeling that they knew this was coming. You know, I think that they know that increasing money supply 40% in one year is eventually going to ring some bells and set off all kinds of alarms in the markets. I think that once that dynamic started revealing itself, that the Federal Reserve said, okay, let's buy ourselves some time. Call it transitory, see what happens, right? They were trying to ignite inflation for years and years and years. Finally, the genie jumped out of the bottle, and I have a feeling that they wanted to give it a little bit of time to run before they put it back in the bottle. But that's what they're trying to do now. I still, I still have my bets on, meaning long commodities and short technology that say that they're not going to be very successful in getting the genie back in the bottle that they're going to also have to keep raising rates and that's going to lend support to hard assets and commodities and probably take the S&P apart a little bit more. Mm. So Tony, let's talk a little bit about bottles and barrels. WTI crude October 22 front month CL1 on the New York Merck trading right now at 84 spot 19. Uh, it's been an interesting run since call it July uh, when it peaked at I think 121 or thereabouts. You mentioned SPR for those not in the know that's Strategic Petroleum Reserve. What are your thoughts there about oil markets and specifically the SPR that you mentioned at the top of the show? Yeah, well, it seems like, you know, uh, the administration is really just using the SPR as a tool to manage the optics of the rising gas price, right? We just were in a situation where the SPR sales were about to roll off into the midterms in November. We just made record SPR sales of 8 million barrels into the market two weeks ago. We made another sale of around 7 million barrels last week into the market. The market's holding up just fine with that selling in the mid 80s. Spreads are holding up just fine. Um, and you've still got a shortage of distillate supplies. So in my opinion, you know, once they finish managing these optics for the midterms, it's quite possible that they will eventually stop the SPR sale, number one, or run out of SPR to sell, number two. Um, and then eventually the price of oil is going to take that oil on and probably float a lot higher. You know, I've been pointing out that open interest is now diminishing. We're well below the two million um, contracts of open interest that we saw as the sort of baseline low during the Trump administration when we were in drill baby drill mode and the energy markets were as efficient as could be. Now they're sort of inefficient and wildly volatile and we're seeing an exodus from open interest. And all that proves to me is that there's no spec long that's looking to heave its brains out out there and knock the crude oil market down another $10. So when I watch the dynamics kind of play out, Ash, I understand and respect the technical pullback due to economic weakness, but I am not giving up on my long-term view that says we're going to see oil back in the $100 range within you know, probably three to six months' time, if I had a guess. So oil back in the $100 range in three to six months' time, and is it fair to say your view of the SPR is it's just a Band-Aid? It's not really doing a whole lot except for optics. Well, it is managing optics, but you got to think of the other side of the coin, Ash. Um, we call it the strategic petroleum reserve so that we can source it in the case of an emergency, in case of war, um, in case our um, you know one that we import from decides that they don't like us enough to sell us any more oil. Um, right. What we do is we're emptying that out. Right. And it has still been my call that the Biden administration is likely to empty it out at somewhere in the mid 80s here and then wind up buying it back at some price above 100, saying, you know, we've got to have some oil in our strategic petroleum reserve somewhere. You know, we can't sit around with this at zero. 
And then we'll see where the market comes from, um, you know, what the market looks like from there. But my sense is there's very little selling outside of the U.S. SPR. And that once that selling lifts, diminishes, slows down, whatever it does, oil is going to go up $10. So it's not just a Band-Aid as a policy. It's a Band-Aid with the potential to exacerbate the infection. It really is, right, Ash? We're spilling, you know, what we used to store as strategic oil out onto the market. That's not going to be there just in case, God forbid, we need to source it in an emergency. So we're in a little bit of a predicament with an empty SPR and $4 gasoline that really doesn't move the needle on, you know, the fact that that price has doubled since the last two or three years. So I think that's the predicament that we're facing now. Yeah, and that's just the facts, Tony. Those are the facts. Those are observable facts where we like to live, right, Ash? Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Tony, speaking of observable facts, lots of other stuff happening in the news cycle today. Got some housing numbers out, uh, a couple of other interesting stories. What else is on your screen? Yeah, I think that is a semi, oops, sorry about that. That is uh, a semi-interesting story right there, Ash. We got better than expected housing data, um, and yet we've got home builders that are carving a new low, ending in negative territory, and not reacting at all to the economic data. What are they reacting to? They're reacting to the fact that 10-year yields just broke above 3.5%, and it looks like they want to keep going, right? So to me, that's why home builders can't catch a whiff of a bid on way better numbers. Um, And we've got more data coming out tomorrow before the FOMC. And my guess is as soon as the good good housing data stops coming out, home builders are going to take another nosedive because yields are not going to back off. So those are just a couple of tells in the market, Ash, that I'm trying to exploit on the view matrix. Hey, Tony, let's talk about that 10-year yield a little bit, because I'm looking at the chart right here on a yield basis, just looking at this walk up from, uh, call it uh, call it actually August of 2020. And it's just, a, it's, it's, it's literally rolling from, what were we at? The low was around, it was around pretty close to 50 bips. And here we are at three and a half. Percentage change basis, huge moves. Yeah, and huge moves with a catalyst, Ash. If you notice, um, two-year yields had a sort of cap on them at around at their old high of three and a half percent, leading into this marquee CPI number. Right, those highs at three and a half percent. I'm sure you had people bullish and long treasuries down there, thinking that the yields had put in a high for the year. Um, Next thing you know, we get that inflationary number and two year yields go on a tear from three and a half to four percent. Yeah. Ten year yields are going slower, but following suit going higher. And then they finally break a technical level when they eclipse three and a half percent, which was the June high. So now you've got the Treasury market trading at a new low for the year and everybody looking at each other saying, wait a minute, we thought yields were going lower. Aren't we weakening the economy? Aren't we heading to a recession, a depression, whatever it is the Fed is trying to manufacture to take heat off inflation? 
whatever it is, it ain't working. So the markets are going to continue to react in inflationary form. To me, that just makes me want to cling to hard assets and be short up to my eyeballs and technology. And guess what, folks? That's how you get minus 40 bips on the 210 spread. There it is right there, right? That big wrench that we just saw on the spread, keeping it in negative territory. Everybody's still planning for recession. Break-evens have backed off to support levels. And the fact is that the inflationary data around the world is not going away anytime soon. And by the way, we should also point to rising mortgage rates pretty dramatically. I mean, pretty extraordinary story there. Wall Street Journal had a chart that I tweeted out a couple of days ago. Ugly. Yeah, that's just a sort of, you know, one of the factors that can keep you in the builder short, you know, the, the, the sort of the longer rates are higher, the worse off that industry is likely going to be with people not reaching for mortgages and not reaching for that next payment and kind of willing to wait it out, looking for yields to go back into, you know, the range that they were in for so long. But my argument would be snap up interest rates now because I still think they're going higher. Yeah, it's over 6% right near average rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage in the U.S. right now. Might look dirt cheap in six months, Ash. Mm, that's a grim prognostication. We're not here to be uh, optimists. We're here to be realists. Yeah, we're here to stay based in fact. Listen, I want to jump into some questions in just a second, but I wanted to run uh, a soundbite here. This is from a conversation that Weston Nakamura had on Real Vision called Why It's Time to Broaden Your View of Central Banks. So right in the wheelhouse of rates that we've been talking about. Let's take a look at the clip. This was actually live today on Real Vision, uh, Essential Plus and Pro. Let's take a look. This consensus narrative currently is one in which global central bank policies are working in coordination um, to, to tighten, to hike rates, to remove a decade of you know, accommodative policy in the face of soaring global inflation, right? It is my belief that this consensus mindset is, and frankly, always has been, very incorrect. Um, and uh, I believe that central banks are not working in some sort of globally coordinated, um, synchronized policy sort of direction. And I will be looking for further clues as to whether or not that is the case um, as I you know, look at these and watch these various central banks uh, and their policies respectively this week. So that's Real Vision Zone, Weston Nakamura saying global central banks are not working in a coordinated way. This is an interesting take. Tony, do you think about this in your view or are you mostly focused on the Fed? Um, I'm mostly focused on the Fed, as you know, I'm a little bit more, you know, microcosm um, studying right now. I think that that's the more important lever that the market's going to pull. Quite honestly, I don't think it matters between 75 and 100 basis points. I feel like the market priced in 100. So the worst is over. And we'll see from here. By the way, a bit of wisdom there, Tony, knowing the things that you focus on and knowing the things that you don't when you within your own framework, a very important point, isn't it? My noise cancellation policy is trained and true, Ash. That's for sure. You got one of the best in the business, Tony. Listen, I know there's a question that came in from Fitz on, uh, I think, on Twitter. Did you want to jump into that? Yes. Thank you for remembering Fitz, our friend on Twitter. Uh, he asked about shipping, about the shipping sector, and I just wanted to touch on it. You know, my observations tell me that the dry bulk container volumes, you know, pricing for that recession are all pricing in. You know, they're contending with the COVID lockdown, you know, the zero COVID policy, which seems to me like China's attempt to have some type of a lever on the global economy when they need it. Um, so we're going to suffer those sort of pullbacks in volumes, um, except the tanker volumes are actually improving of late. 
Um, you know, I think everyone in the energy markets is realizing and certainly the physical energy markets are starting to maybe plan around the idea that the SPR sales are going to be finite and starting to get ahead of, you know, the next several months and into what kind of uh, deliveries they need on their books. And I think that that's going to be the sort of determining factor in when people pull the trigger on buying the tanker volumes that they need to have. So um, that's really the only take that I have on tankers. And the one other question he asked me that I want to answer, because it was a good one. Please. Um, is there a correlation between dollar index and gold? And I would have to say a resounding yes, just from looking at the screen. Gold hasn't found a bid since the dollar index took off. Um, they are the same chart if you invert just one of them. And it doesn't feel like gold is going to stop going down until the dollar stops going up. You know, that is a correlation between gold and commodities that totally broke away where energy has been able to rally in the last two years and significantly with a stronger dollar. Precious metals have really struggled. Base metals have even struggled. But it's clear that precious metals are not going to get off the mat with a rallying dollar. That's all I got for you, Fitz. Thanks, Ash. Great questions and great answers, Tony. Here's a great question that comes to us from Bo Nito. This is a really fantastic one. Tony, as Powell fights inflation, do you see him paying more attention to asset values or employment numbers? Now, we know the dual mandate states that it's obviously about stable prices and maximum sustainable employment. But Bo Nito asking this question, is the Fed essentially paying attention to asset valuations? That's a tough question. You know, I'm not the best Fed prognosticator. I'm sure that they're paying attention to asset prices. They seem to be leaning the needle towards they want to fight the inflation um, a little bit more powerfully than maybe they had when they were calling it transitory. So I think that that's going to come into play and really maybe just cap the upside of the S&P for, for the time being. Um, other than that, it's hard to get a read until it all comes out in the wash and we see what the Fed says and how the market reacts. I'm much better at that than I am at prognosticating, if that's fair. Very fair. Here's one from Oliver M. Boy, Tony, this is a question that a lot of people are wondering about. Question for Tony. What is the best inflation hedge? Nothing I'm watching is working. I tell you, I got a couple of my babies in my account, and I don't know whether anything can be proven out to be a fair inflation hedge or if it's just the right energy plays or natural resources plays. But I've been sticking with the ETF in natural resources for natural resources called IGE. And this certainly is an investment advice, but I do like the membership composition of that ETF in that it is very heavily weighted in refiners, which are set up for success for the sort of medium to long term. It's long a lot of chemical and finished product companies, which I think are at the heart of the, you know, ESG crisis slash commodity shortage slash supply chain story that I think that is going to be a secular in nature. So also, I also like it because when the S&P suffers extremes on the downside, I don't really feel like the natural resources ETF suffers as extreme downside pressure. So a lot of times it's the kind of thing where when I look back, when the S&P backed off 10%, my natural resources holdings are off 3%. And sometimes that's the best I can do, quite honestly, is try to stay alive like that and just be thankful that I didn't give up the other 7%. So when I see and I feel like I've got securities or sectors that are performing and holding water, uh, performing in up markets and holding water in down markets, 
I like my money in those names. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Tony, here's some questions, a whole uh, barrage of them in a row about the oil markets. The first one comes to us from Armin. What kind of catalyst do you see happening in order to unlock higher multiples on oil, commodity, and ag stocks? Well, taxing fossil fuel companies to pay for the energy crisis is the exact opposite direction, um, I think, of what we're looking for there. That is a sort of reverse catalyst for the ENP companies, right? I mean, that is going to be a disaster if they bring that idea to the United States. That's uh, exp- exploration and production on the uh, oil and gas side, for those who don't know. Yeah, sorry. I don't. I, I think that's a, a sort of... Uh, you know, political deal breaker if they bring that idea here to the United States. Obviously, they're socializing it in Europe now, but I think it's going to be quite a while before um, we get to any sort of, you know, easing, any sort of catalyst that that speaks to easing of the oil markets and the tightness within them. I don't know if I answered that question great, Ash. I think I may have gotten off on a mental tangent there. Well, no, it's all part of this bigger story, exactly as you point out. And and by the way, we may see a change of heart in Europe after this winter. We know that we're looking at energy shortages there. And we know that, for example, Germany was about to spin down, I think, their last four nuclear power plants that accounted for approximately 11% of their uh, domestic supply uh, of energy. And they decided they weren't going to spin them down because of this oil crisis. So these uh, oil and gas crisis, we should say fossil fuel crisis in in Europe more broadly, the Germans are going to keep that nuclear power plant, uh, those four nuclear power plants open. Maybe we'll see a change of heart on some of the uh, punitive legislation around energy uh, in Europe and maybe in the U.S. as well. I'm not going to count on a change of heart in the punitive legislation. That seems like it is a fixture or feature, not a bug of the ESG um, push to carbon neutral, if that's fair. If it, it feels like, you know, when you see the UN coming out and suggesting taxing fossil fuel companies as being the plan, you know, it sounds like Europe is just going to start writing checks to pay for the energy damage that it's causing. And I feel like that's a little bit of the messaging that the bond markets are getting clear as could be, right? They see that inflationary, they see those um, inflationary stimulus packages coming. And the yields just refuse to back off because they know that this is all the only way that the governments are going to fight this issue. Here's an interesting one from Ralph Humphrey on a related point. What does Tony think about getting long oil volatility? That is a little 3D chess for me right now. Um, I, I do. I mean, I think it's very fair to say that the oil market is set up to be extremely volatile. I would imagine that if you were long options that, you know, and you were astutely trading them, that you would be able to realize the volatility that you were long um, in in sort of delta trading around your options. So I think that that's probably an asset to have on your trading pad. Um, It's a little bit difficult for me to make a call on the volatility right now. I mean, if I had to make um, a, a technical comment on oil, I would have to say that as a sort of 
fundamental and natural born oil bull, I've been extremely disappointed in the price action. The price action has had a number of chances to reverse and to break above key resistance levels in key reversals, and it just keeps failing and getting smashed for another 5% to a new low. So until that dynamic stops, I can't really um, chirp up as an oil bull, but knowing the energy situation is that we are so many years behind on investment in terms of trying to keep the price down, we don't have a shot of doing that. So it's just a matter of time. Here's a fun one from Melson Babe on YouTube. The question is, hi, gents. After Timoros's piece, he's talking about Nick, he or she is talking about Nick Timoros uh, in the Wall Street Journal, who's got a very good track record on predicting Fed moves. Uh, it seems likely to me that 75 basis points is priced in. The deciding factor for direction now is terminal rate and how quickly we get there. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair. I, I, like I said, I think 75 to 100 is probably priced in with the violent way that the market came off. Um, I feel like that was the narrative that circulated right after the worse than expected inflation data, right? The conversations that I was having is, well, it's going to be 100 basis points now, isn't it? Right. So I feel like that may be a good call, 75 basis points, in that that's an option that the Fed has to say, Okay, we're not alarmed by the last CPI number. We're sticking with our course, 75 basis points at a clip. And next thing you know, you see a 300 point relief rally before Jerome Powell pushes his glasses back up his nose. <laughs> Tony Grew, we've blown through almost 30 minutes here. It seems like uh, it's just flown by. Final thoughts uh, that you'd like to leave our audience with. Uh, yeah, these are, those are the two, uh, you know, th those two dynamics, I think, right now, Ash, um, meaning, how we're going to play this FOMC, meaning is it going to be another FOMC haiku where we buy the meeting and sell the minutes? Um, I think that we're really lined up for that. Also, um, you know, the energy markets right now are really, really fascinating to me. You know, I, I, love, I love the rhetoric going back and forth. I love the U.S. administration still calling it Putin's price hike and claiming that inflation has come down a little bit. Um, I love the uh, recent comments out of the CE Aramco CEO for some juxtaposition. I feel like this guy is definitely like a disciple of Doomberg who understands that energy is life and that platitudes will get you nowhere. Let me let me let me read you this quote from um, CEO of uh, Saudi Aramco Amin Nasser. Okay, Ash. Quote: When you shame oil and gas investors, dismantle oil and coal power plans fail to diversify energy, oppose LNG, and reject nuclear, you trans your transition plan had better be right. Instead, as this crisis has shown, the plan was just a chain of sandcastles that waves of reality have washed away, and billions around the world now face the energy and cost of living consequences that are likely to be severe and prolonged. Not going to see that comment on the CBS News this tonight, right, Ash? I think it's really important that the head of a major international oil company is pointing out the platitudes that are getting knocked down one by one by this carbon neutral fiasco that we're putting ourselves through. And I think this is starting to raise awareness about the issues that are out there. So I think, I think eventually the political pendulum will swing so far that ESG will be something that will be severely questioned when nobody can afford to heat their house or buy food. Yeah, or at very least, maybe the time horizon of the objectives. Totally.
Totally. But I think those are the major, major stories that are playing out in the market that affect every sector of the market, Ash. And you really just can't you take your eye off of this energy trade, not for a minute. Tony, let me run through some of my key takeaways here, and you tell me if I goof any of these up. No. Uh, so in your view, we're going to see oil back in the $100 range in three to six months. Um, we got better than expected housing data out today, uh, and home builders are reacting effectively to the 10-year yield story. Uh, home builders are going to take another nosedive because 10-year yields are not going to back off anytime soon. Markets are going to continue to react to inflationary data. Inflationary data around the world is not going away, and the oil market is set up to be extremely volatile. Those are good cliff notes, man. You're good at this, Ash. You've done this before? <laughs> Once or twice I've been on air. But we've got a whole team at Real Vision who's watching and deciduously walking through uh, all of your points. Tony, it's fantastic to have you. I mean, this was just great. we got to do this more often, man. Uh, it's great to get the band back together. It's a shame we don't have some drums and guitar, Ash, and keep going. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, well, I had a uh, I had a closing statement here, but for some reason my script has just jumped. I'm not sure why, but we're going to be back uh, tomorrow doing this once again. Tony, this is always great. Really enjoyed this. We'll do it again soon, Ash. Thanks for coming by, man. Thanks for joining us, and thank you for watching, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this. Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.